From Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is What's Next, Producers Picks. Highlights of conversations heard on previous episodes. On this week's show, we'll hear from Dr. Highland, the director of the New York State Smokers Quit Line, and Herman, one of the participants of said program. We'll also hear from Jay Moran as he takes a trip down to the exchange at Beverly Gray, where he has a conversation with its director, Derek Parson. Many of the health issues in the United States can trace their origin to chronic cigarette smoking. To help those in our state that are working to kick the habit and quit smoking, Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center began the New York State Smokers Quit Line, a valuable tool when it comes to smoking cessation. In this producer's pick offering, we'll hear from the program's director, Dr. Andrew Highland, and one of its participants, Herman, who successfully quit smoking. Andrew, can you give us just a, a, a history of, of the New York State Smokers Quit Line, your involvement, how it started, what what you all do? Yeah, well, the, yeah, so the uh, the Quit Line in its current form started in 2000 um, at Roswell Park. Uh, we've we've uh, provided that service since that time. Actually, there were nuggets of it even earlier. There was a National Cancer Information Service. Uh, you know, there was the National Cancer Act in the 70s, and uh, you know, we should educate people about cancer. One of those things was uh, 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 talking about smoking, and Roswell Park had a role in that. Eventually, that morphed into a statewide effort and started off in uh, a sort of a satellite office over in one of the buildings at Roswell Park. Probably not too much bigger than this studio, which isn't very big for those. Giving away our, our, our not so spacious uh, digs here. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and what we realized is the demand was insatiable. There were lots of people out there throughout the state that were looking for help. Uh, so it was initially t- telephone services. People would call. We would. A lot of it was referral, just sending them mm-hmm. information about local clinics. Uh, it physicians that, was, that would would refer uh, patients or, or yeah. participants, or was it family members? Uh, so, in terms of coming to the quit line, uh, those early days uh, it was uh, the press release, word mm-hmm. of mouth uh, kinds of things, and, and then into the later part of the to the first decade of of this century. Uh, the state began to run some uh, public education efforts uh, to try to help people quit, encourage people to quit, you know, when they're ready. And uh, that really took off. We saw like tens of thousands of people coming to us. There was uh, one moment when New York City adopted its smoke-free policy where you couldn't smoke in workplaces Mm -hmm. or restaurants anymore. Uh, We were 400,000 phone calls in one one week. There was a a program that gave away free uh, nicotine patches uh, in in New York City. And uh, so we learned a lot from that. We learned that demand was insatiable, and we learned that there was lots of interest in uh, these stop-smoking medications, which is something to this day New York State is known as uh, like the go-to resource for how you implement something like that. In total, over those you know 23 years now, more than 2 million people have called us uh, mm-hmm. or texted us uh, for help with their stop smoking effort. Um, currently, we, we help about 30,000 people a year. Uh, and uh, you know, our services are evolving and adapting 
with the times, uh, ultimately to try to help people, give them the nudge that they need. When they come to us, uh, they've, most people have already made the decision that it's time to quit. So we just want to uh, provide them with some encouragement, with some evidence-based uh, strategies to help them get through some rough patches along the way because it's not easy, but it's doable. Mm-hmm. Lots of things in life are not easy, but, but mm-hmm. you do them because of the the greater, you know, the greater good. So right now we have uh, uh, telephonic services. People can call us. Um, we can get you that information here. One eight six six NY quits. It's a phone number. You can go to the website nysmokefree.com. Lots of information um, there. We have a text messaging program. Um, Learn to quit New York, uh, and uh, you can. You check that program out, and I know Herman's got a, a great story to tell about his experience there. We have chat features as well if you're looking uh, to to utilize that. So we try to meet people, in, you know, where they are in the format that they're looking for. We find telephone tends to be a little bit older. We find uh, text messaging a little bit younger, but there's lots of people doing doing each. And again, we get about 100 people a day that are that are you know the phones are ringing. And uh, or the the websites are humming, you know, along the way. So those numbers are both impressive that that you're helping that that great deal of, of folks, but also alarming uh, that we're still seeing this. I mean, I think it was 1964 that the Surgeon General put out his report that hey, this is this is not good for our health. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And since then, we've been working. I think. <laughs> Baby steps, little by little, uh, trying to get to a, a, a better place when it comes to that back and forth with the tobacco companies and how they how they do their business. You mentioned the text line, the Learn to Quit New York. It's a six-week text messaging program. Uh, I think from the, our initial conversation, it's very popular among the 25 and 44-year-olds, but that's a tool that... Herman, you for that that's what helped you in, in this in this process, right? Correct. So it, it not just not for the youngins, it's, it's for it's for all ages. Yeah. And and Herman, your story, I, I, I start off by asking, how did you first get introduced to smoking, and, and when did you know that that there was a need to to start curbing it? Okay, I started smoking in the year of 1970 under a stressful uh, situation. Most of the people I was involved with at that time uh, smoked cigarettes, and me because of peer not peer pressure, but just wanting to be like everyone else, be cool, I started smoking. I was in Canada at the time. Then when I came back to Buffalo, I still uh, had the urge to smoke. And I was always under the impression that smoking relieves stress, fills in the blanks while you don't have, or if you're involved in something, and to, uh, you you light up a cigarette to continue that continuity. It gives a little, you, little kick. Yes, yes. For me, it's I'm I'm, I'm Cuban, so caffeine is 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 the one that I have to yeah. I have to monitor. But yeah, it gives Abs- you that. Absolutely, and you reach a dependency or uh, like you say uh, an addiction to cigarettes. You know, uh, it tends to fill that void with, from whatever circumstance. A lot of people do it for various reasons, but when we were first, when I was first starting smoking, I never looked at the ills of smoking, how hazardous it could be to me. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I've seen people I've, uh, that 
had COPD, had got cancer, and I saw the repercussions of smoking. But, however, at that time, I never thought it would happen to me. That was just something that happened, okay? Uh, and this this periodically through whatever situation I was I was in, periodically I would smoke, whether it be a happy hour, whether it be an occasion I'm talking to someone on the phone, whether it be a situation I'm trying to resolve, okay? I always uh, depended on, subconsciously, always depended on that cigarette to make me feel better, okay? And, okay, when I, became, when I got in my 30s, uh, mid-30s, I realized that this wasn't the thing to do because of some of the people I was associating with, they didn't smoke. However, that was short-lived because I went right back to smoking, regardless of what the occasion is. Or sometimes the occasion did dictate to me to take a, uh, light a cigarette. Then, probably my 40s to 50s, I cut down on my smoking, but I realized that it was, I had an operation not related to smoking, but I went to Roswell uh, Hospital to have a thoracic surgery. But then I was in a room with a guy that was a cigarette smoker, but I don't know if this, his ailment was was uh, caused by smoking, but he had a lot of lesions on his back. Mm. And then I was an eye-opener where I kind of related to his situation with smoking. Uh, plus, my doctors, every time I would go to the doctor, they would always ask me, did I smoke? And then they would say, no, you can't do this because you... But they said, well... Maybe if you don't smoke that much, uh, it, it won't bother you. But cut down, try to get, cut down, try to leave that smoking alone. So this this, this resonated. But I always, I, I, I never, I, don't, I can't remember the guy, the gentleman's name, but I remember his condition and how he was suffering. And I just attributed that to smoking. But it didn't penetrate until maybe 20 years later. <laughs> now... I I realized some after effects of smoking, coughing, things, uh, particles getting caught in my throat that I'm eating. When I perspire or when I take off my clothes, I can smell the smoke in it. I would always, after eating, require a cigarette. And those things, to me, uh, were something that I acquired, this habit I acquired, but I wasn't born with that. So I said, I can't leave this alone. At my age now, it's really, I know smoking is detrimental. And a lot of, th- a lot of times I, always, I, I would ask myself when I have take a cigarette, when I was smoking, and I would say, if something does result from this, like cancer or loss of limb or anything that bad can happen, what I asked myself, I would ask myself, was this worth it? And then the more I would say those things or repeat those things, it kind of quilled my 
my appetite for to smoke. And then the people that I'm with now, my church members, uh, my daughter, close friends, neither of them smoke. Most of them have overcome smoking. And that really, that helps me because nothing in life is easy. And I kind of think of this, every time I do have an urge to smoke, it's going to be hard, but you've overcame everything else. You can overcome the smoking. And I'll, to be perfectly honest with you, I haven't smoked a cigarette probably in three months, but I still have that, that subconscious <laughs> subliminal message, oh, mm -hmm. you need a cigarette. But then I know that it's no good for me. I know that people have suffered as a result of, of constantly smoking. And I know that with willpower, strength, resources, like I'm getting from New York Quit Line, uh, my church members, my prayer, my daughter, my family, I can overcome this, okay? I never want to get to a point where I'm relaxed and feel like I never will smoke again, but I know deep down inside I will never smoke again because I will never let any problem drive me back to smoking. Because whatever problem I have, smoking would be just a temporary psychological fix. But the problem of smoking, cancer, can't be reversed. So that's where I am today. But I can tell you something, like the, the survey I took, the New York State Court line, they always gave me encouragement not to smoke, gave me tools to use to help me in times of maybe weakness, or use these tools so you won't enter that time of weakness. And that's been a tremendous help. And all the things that I've learned from smoking clit line, hurt, learn from, I'm hearing from people that have overcome the smoking habit. I knew, I've heard a lot of these things in the past, but I didn't pay attention to. But I think one of the biggest things, oh, plus the ads on TV, mm. where these people are uh, deformed, had cancer in certain parts of their body, or they had the ill effects of cancer. Those things, those people I've always seen prior to this time, I never really paid attention to it. Oh, that's just an ad. Just going. But now, for thank God, for some reason, it's, it's penetrating my thought process. This could, this could be you, not the process, I, the thoughts I had before. Oh, it couldn't be me. But now I say it could be me. And why not, why, you know, why not quit? It's an amazing story, Herman, and I'm, I'm, I'm thankful you shared it with us. Um, what were some of those tools that really hammered the point home from the, from, you mentioned the, the text line, what was it? There's there's that moment that that because you don't think about it when you're in it. Sure. But then there's that that you mentioned that the patient that you were next to at Roswell, you saw the, the immediate effects, and then eventually just something something a light bulb went on. Yes. What what were some of those tools that that, that caused that to really sure? It was a culmination of things. Plus, it, it, over time period, 
It seemed like I got it, but I couldn't put, I couldn't connect all the all the the, the, the things that that affected me later on positively. Positively, but okay, one of the tools, um, um, the breathing technique, mm-hmm. the meditation, uh, the talking with other people uh, that overcame smoking, the the the. the Having the the courage to to tell people that you were weak at a particular times, when if you do, I don't say relapse or go back to smoking, don't beat yourself up. Don't feel like oh well, I can't stop, and just give up and then go back to the same old bad habits. And just hope if you really want to do something like like one of one of the things in my survey, uh, when I talked to an individual. They said, if you really want to succeed in life, you have to make an effort to do it on your own. Don't depend on someone else to do it for you. Depend mm-hmm. on people to help you, but it's all—it's ultimately up to you because there's no excuse. You can't tell, you can't blame anything on anybody else, but once you deal with, with it yourself, it's a problem, and you know the the ill effects, the, 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 the negativity of what you're involved in, once you know those facts, then that's when you have to make up your mind to become determined to, to, to accomplish what you set out to accomplish. It's great that, that Roswell Park is doing this initiative because I, I feel like we, we have other stories such as Herman, success stories that, are, that, are, that come out of this program. You mentioned... 30,000 a year? Yeah, well, I mean, Herman, thanks for sharing your story. I mean, it's just an amazing story. And for me, I'm getting like, you know, tingly because it's just, it's everything we could hope for in Mm -hmm. in an outcome. And there's a hundred stories like yours every day. And that's just in New York State. Mm -hmm. And then there's 50 states. And then you see globally where this is going to, where the companies, well, cigarette smoking is going in in the downward direction, yeah, the right yeah. direction for health. Here is still, uh, you know, a massive global scale. So there's lots of work to do. And it's, you know, it's all hands on deck, really, to try to work through the public education and try to, mm-hmm. you know, tell people, because some people, you know, don't realize, or maybe in your story, Herman, it was, you, you sort of realized it, but you didn't, though. Sure. It, mm-hmm. took, it took time for right. you to, Right. to come to it and i think a lot of people when they when they make the decision to quit it is that that process They're like oh i could quit any time or yeah. i'll quit uh you know i'll quit when i'm 30 or i'll quit when i have kids or i'll quit you know whenever and uh um it just have to kind of come to it but from a health standpoint it's there's a there's a media campaign it's called every cigarette mm-hmm. is doing you damage sure, sure. and that is the case for each one so quitting now gives you the most benefit but quitting at any time you know when when you're ready and trying to most people uh want to quit 90 percent of people who use cigarettes regret having started and it's, so it's just a matter of trying to work to to get that to come out and then make those efforts. I loved how you put, put putting yourself out there and say, you know, I'm I'm ready to quit. And it, it used the term courage, you know, because it does to say, yes. hey, you know, I, I I have a problem, and I, I I could use everyone around me to give me a little bit of a boost. It takes courage to do that. That's an Absolutely. important part for a lot right. of people. Dr. Island, you deal with participants such as Herman, 
And you also see younger individuals. Uh, I think as uh, now we're seeing what I'm seeing is the big push for uh, uh, vaping and and flavor and flavors being in, in, in put into into nicotine. Is it the is it the is it flavoring? Is it the additives, which in in themselves are just incredibly toxic and and, and lethal. That's that's really where because nicotine has its 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 uh, detrimental effects, but it's all everything else that comes with it that these companies are putting into it. Yeah, uh, yes, yeah, absolutely. So there's a cu- couple of points here with regard to cigarettes and combusted products. It really is those, the toxins come from that the burning process. So that's like, you know, the the dirt, you know, you see the smoke, that's mm-hmm. dirt, basically, that's coming from the combustion process. So the nicotine is what keeps you going back to that dirty well. Mm-hmm. And uh, so nicotine itself probably isn't uh, uh, harmful in of itself, but it, again, to the extent that it keeps you dependent and going back to those cigarettes. So the... Uh, the the other components, if they're additives or flavors, anything, that's just kind of marginal around the edges, I think, in terms of actual health risks. Um, you know, with cigarettes, the flavored product that is is menthol cigarettes. Mm-hmm. And, and Herman, I think that's sure. how you had used menthol cigarettes th- yes. throughout. And, uh, you know, that uh, we see that through the industry marketing where they use it as a tool to make things seem clean and mm-hmm. fresh and I, I know in many African American cool. communities that's, that's, that yes, they sort of use that. Well, ac- exactly. See, so, yeah, cool. That's that's like not an accident. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how that how that's done. So so there's that component that these you know you can have harm not just by something itself being inherently harmful, but if it's used as a as a, a, a marketing tool to get people hooked. Um, we also see people who use menthol have a harder time quitting. Um, and uh, so there's just, you know, there's tailwinds and headwinds uh, on this. So in terms of the flavors, combusted products, uh, cigarettes, are when you burn it, that's where the harm is. And the flavors kind of sweeten the poison um, to a certain degree. With vaping products, it's a different, it, it's, there's similarities, but it, it is somewhat different. Vaping, you're not combusting so you're not getting Mm -hmm. as many toxins so but they're not toxin free um we do see uh we we help people who are vaping if they're looking to get uh, off of vaping you can get hooked on vaping just like you can get hooked on cigarettes and we see especially in the last like three or four years a lot more people that are who like try vaping are progressing on to like daily use um, the products themselves are changing over time. Um, the quit line does offer serv- the same the same services that are tailored to the product. So if you're using other products than cigarettes, um, the quit line is a resource uh, to go to if you're looking to try to free yourself of that of that dependence. And I'm I'm glad you brought up menthol because I want to get into the racial disparities between white smokers and minority or primarily black smokers. Um, Herman, you, you, I saw you nodding your head, you're a person of color. Was menthol your, your, your go-to kind of, kind of cigarette? Absolutely. I, I prefer the menthol as opposed to the regular cigarettes. There was a, there was a saying that you, back in the seven, mid-70s, it would say, 
cools or menthol cigarettes crystallizes your lungs. Now, I don't know how truthful that was. However, <laughs> it didn't come over well, but still, it just it had no bearing on the choice of cigarette you wanted. I can't, the reason for me smoking, because I enjoyed it. Mm. Uh, another reason, uh, it was cool. That's I the feel, other one. Like we've been, we've been programmed since yes. like, days of yeah. John Wayne, and, <laughs> yes. and 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 I mean, I, I worried about when Mad Men was was a big thing because that made. <laughs> right. I mean, that was a cool show, but but uh -huh. you would see them and just and you'd say, what 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 were we doing back then in, right, in that right. in that era? Absolutely. Um, and we just been that's been that's been kind of slow, like subvertly sprinkled into our pop culture in one way or another, and and you wonder. Uh, how much of how much of an effect that has had on 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 folks like yourself on my on myself because I like I said I I dabbled and and you wonder just how much uh, the the tobacco industries have really they know what they're doing absolutely and then one of the things was when I was encouraged to stop smoking and you mentioned vaping because they sold the idea or just the information I got this this was better than smoking. This is an alternative to smoking in a healthier way. But come to find out, as you're saying, it's just as detrimental to your body as smoking. I don't know how the information gets out, like, like you say, from the tobacco company, the vaping companies, but I was really surprised that there's legislation being passed where you're going to and you're talking about upcoming legislation about the 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 menthol cigarette. Uh, one thing that concerns me is our legislator uh, and the lobbyists. Yep. You know, the lobbyists, they, they'll pay for votes or pay for non-votes. And, and I think this country is probably in the right direction. But... There's a lot more has to be done. Thank you, Dr. Holland, for mm -hmm. your good efforts. And all you guys that, that, that from the people that I don't know that are involved from Roswell, I give them credit for continuously putting out the word, showing that smoking is detrimental to your body. And then we have to grasp that and look at it. And when you're saying one more thing, but when you're saying, that when you when people get this information and when when I got the information you know how harmful smoking is to people I said oh it never happened to me and I never I I never would have even paid attention to that until it comes close to me someone that I know that that receives uh, the offshoot of bad things, uh, uh, the result from smoking, then it only penetrates my psyche. But that's the thing I would like for people to 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 realize when you when it when when you're telling them the harmful effects of smoking, that somehow they can grasp that, and never just push it behind them. Oh, oh, I want another cigarette instead of looking at the harmful effects of smoke of smoking. And I'm I'm sorry to bring in race. I mean, we we'd like to have those uncomfortable conversations, and and some of our critics, whoever they may be, or might be doing a straw man here, but I I, I like to play devil's advocate, <laughs> and I can I can imagine. Oh, you guys make everything about race. 
But look no further than the numbers. There's 73% of black individuals who smoke want to quit smoking. And then primarily the numbers of, of deaths. There's 45,000 deaths of black Americans every year because of heart disease, cancer, and strokes, all byproducts of, of tobacco use. Um, and, it, and when you look at how it's, it's targeted, how, it, it, how to companies disproportionately target minority communities, uh, they're advertising, their presence uh, in, in billboards and advertising. Thankfully, we're, we're past that. We've, we've outlawed that. But it's, it used to be where it was you get special pricing in certain communities. You advertise in black publications, uh, HBCUs and other community events were, were also funded by, by tobacco. Uh, so it, it's targeted marketing, plain and simple. Um, and then when you add the issues of systemic racism and health inequity, health system inequity, it's why you see, I think, a lot of these disproportionate numbers. So uh, once again, I'm sorry to bring race into it, but it, it, it's clearly something that they, the companies know what they're doing. In, in reaching out, in, in making menthol and flavor, menthol flavored cigarettes a, a, a pushing point to, to communities. Um, I wanted to mention we're a long ways away from, from the 60s, the aforementioned 60s, uh, smoking in restaurants, theaters, practically everywhere, that's gone. Uh, there's big changes in, in laws. Um, Dr. Hyland, you mentioned that there's an, there's an FDA lawsuit correct uh, currently that's hope, hopefully it's, it's statewide and and countywide that menthol sales are, are being restricted yeah yeah see a lot to unpack in in there I think certainly <laughs> certainly to consider the the role of the industry they're they're trying to maximize profits mm -hmm. you know so they're looking at ways that they can do that and and have and you named a number of ways that are there, and I think that's just really the bottom line. They're looking to maximize profits. Menthol, menthol cigarettes are sold in lots of countries. It's only in the U.S. where one population segment has such a, a disproportionate use. The 80 percent of uh, people, who, uh, African Americans, use, who smoke use menthol cigarettes. It's just it's like off the charts, and it, I, I, I think you're onto something that that kind of marketing targeted pricing strategies historically, you know, have. I mean, there's industry documents from their files that show their marketing plans how to reach African American. Uh, tobacco users so I want to make sure by the way that I, I source my numbers they're from they're from the American Lung Association so it's not just it's not just any old uh, rinky-dink uh, organization coming up with these numbers it's mm -hmm. a tried and tested organization that's been around for a while trying to combat this very thing mm -hmm. um, and, and as you mentioned Herman you saw it around your population your friends and uh, it's Stopping it where 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 it's really prevalent that I think we we need to we need to focus on. Is there anything that you'd like to see be done to hopefully curb it even even further? I'll start with you, well, Andrew. Okay. Well, sure. And this is where you know there, there's like you know a couple of points, and so it's not one approach, and that's the only way. Certainly, look at the industry and trying to you know there's a flavored product that kills half of its users. Uh, prematurely, you know, so mm. there's no other consumer product like that. It, and you think of it in those terms, it's outrageous that 
we, you know, we let that happen. But there's also, you know, there's sort of bottom up, like the individual to say, okay, I'm going to, regardless of what else is going on. And that's what I heard from some of so your words, Herman, that, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this. And, and it doesn't matter what other people think or because only I can take responsibility mm -hmm. for my, right. you know, for my, so I think the work that those two approaches work kind of synergistically together mm -hmm. um, at the, at the higher, at the sort of policy level, there are some things that are happening in New York state. Uh, last, uh, last year, there was a, a bill that would ban menthol cigarettes. Uh, there are uh, two other states that have adopted a menthol cigarette ban already. Um, several countries, the European Union, mm -hmm. Canada, they've all banned menthol cigarettes. Uh, terrible things didn't happen other than more people quit smoking. Um, we project that a, a U.S. menthol cigarette ban would prevent 633,000 premature deaths and a, almost a quarter million fewer uh, premature deaths than African Americans. Uh, so Currently the, here in the state, how, how do we, where do we, where do we stand? Yeah, so, so it, New York State is about, I don't know, 5% or so of the national population, so you could scale those numbers down. So it, it would be many thousands of, of lives saved with that kind of policy, all through, uh, mostly through people quitting uh, more quickly and also with fewer kids starting because we know the menthol flavor is an important factor. Kids who start with a menthol product are more likely mm. to continue to use the tobacco products when we track them. The year. So that's what's happening at New York, at the New York state level. There's also a federal level, the, the Center for Tobacco Products, which is part of the FDA. Mm -hmm. They have a, uh, a draft rule that will ban menthol cigarettes and also ban all flavored cigars, which is uh, mm -hmm. similar. Um, right now, there's no rules. You get cherry flavor, vanilla flavor. There's uh, yeah, no rules at all on there. So that those rules are expected to be finalized. Uh, pretty soon and then uh, and then we'll see so it's a two-year process there's public comment the rules are revised but uh, they have a public health mandate so we'll see how that unfolds I would expect when those rules get finalized there the industry will litigate and then it'll be up to the courts to decide and that's probably going to take a while which is why it's important if New York State uh, wants to take on this issue wants to try to reduce the health disparities uh, that caused by uh, cigarette smoking, mm -hmm. um, then that's the opportunity for them to revisit revisit that issue in the next session. Herman, I, let me backtrack a bit. It's a it's a white, black, brown, everybody brown. problem. But we were having a conversation right before we started speaking. I want to reiterate that for 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 now for the audience. You see these numbers, but what is it that needs to be done? in order to hopefully c combat this? Well, um, your information, the statistics, they show that they are true that the black community is targeted. But in the information and, uh, and, and talking to everyone, and, and especially blacks, they have to realize that whatever they use cigarettes for, to fill the void, to calm their nerves, to, relieve some stress or tension. But the problem is a lot deeper. Religion, education, jobs, self-esteem, all these are tools that we must 
be cognizant of to help us overcome and do and, or any situation. Life is life, but we don't want to become. We don't want to make ourselves victims, or we don't want to use an excuse for our failures. But uh, I would like the black community to believe in themselves. Take the facts that they are that are given them and say, "Oh wow, you're targeting me." I'm not going to fall victim to this, regardless of what satisfaction I get out of this. Think of your kids. You don't want your kids to smoke. You don't want your kids to do anything detrimental. And then just disseminate this information amongst yourselves and feel like you're used and abused. But then at the, at the final end, you're letting yourself be misused. I did it to myself. But the light came on for whatever reason. I chose for the light to come on for me to realize that the black community has to take a stand and then fight against being unfavorably targeted and just don't become a victim. Next up on What's Next Producers Picks, our host Jay Moran took a trip down to the Beverly Gray Center on Buffalo's east side. The Exchange of Beverly Gray is a business incubator that specifically targets underrepresented or BIPOC business entrepreneurs. They provide the overhead, training workshops, and additional services to help people of color to start up their own businesses. Jay Moran was able to have a conversation with the center's executive director, Derek Parson, about the work they're doing. Let's make sure I have the exact title correct. The Exchange at Beverly Gray? Correct. That's the name of the uh, incubator and co-working space that is now in the heart on the east side of Jefferson and Utica. Former Jefferson Library. Beautiful little building here. Yes, it is. Historic building. Very exciting because you get the seasoned community members coming in to uh, relive their reading rainbows uh, days as they (laughs) stated and then getting to see what the building is now. And what about the being right here at uh, East Utica and Jefferson? How important is that? No, it's really important because it's in the heart of the community. As you know, we are a block away from the tragedy that happened. And so to have a space that is specific for resources that pour into businesses in the region, I mean, it, it can't be uh, stated how impactful and important that this location is. Since you did mention the, the tragedy, the May 14th mm-hmm. tragedy, I mean, we can see the Tops parking lot from right. from your window here. If you don't mind, um, I'm curious about how things were for you, people here inside this building during that time, not even necessarily just that Saturday, but, mm-hmm. I mean, media was here from all over the country, all over the world. What was it like for everybody here? Yeah, it, it was... It was uh, as everyone knows, it was a time, right? I think what most people don't know is that we actually stopped an event from happening that day. And we, I got a call from one of my close friends who is a Buffalo police officer. And he was like, you're not at the building, are you? And I was like, no, we canceled all the events for today. And he was like, good, stay home, all of that. And then we found out what was going on. So Luckily, no one was here. The aftermath, obviously, still to this day hurts and is something in our minds. However, I think the fact that this building is thriving, that the business owners, all of color, 
continue to come here day in and day out regardless of the possibilities, right? It's a testament to them wanting to be in the community. It's a testament to want, wanting to show that, hey, we are stronger together. So Yeah, I was always going to say, uh, when you were talking like that, it sounds like maybe not people saying it out loud, but maybe even a sense that there's a, a doubling down, a, a, a recommitment to what brought people here in the first place. Absolutely. You know, um, one of our tenants, Clementine Gold Group, they even stated that, hey, they're a strategy and a strategic planning firm. They said that they want to be in this area. They, they focus, they have an equity lens with their business. They stated that of all the office spaces that they could have been in throughout the city of Buffalo, they chose this specifically and intentionally because of what happened on that tragic day, but more importantly, how they can pour back into the community surrounding the top. So we just look at it as, you know what, it's a give back. And it's, it's difficult for us, too, because as a business incubator, we don't necessarily touch the individual communities. We touch the people in the community who want to start a business. So what we've been doing is figuring out how we can give back to the community in different ways, even as we pour into the entrepreneurs and business owners who are here. Incubators are complex Mm -hmm. endeavors, to say the least. (laughs) (laughs) I see that uncomfortable smile on your face. So let's let's we'll get into maybe a couple different elements of it. But those the people who, like you said, you talked about uh, the Clementine Group, how they want to be here, they feel like they need to be here. How about the other? Is there a common thread about the other businesses that are trying to to get started through this incubator? Yeah, the the thread is generally or or most specifically, it's a community for them, right? The Exchange at Beverly Gray, as we say it all the time, it's the first incubator and co-working space specifically serving underrepresented and BIPOC entrepreneurs and business owners. You're not going to find that anywhere else here in the city of Buffalo. And we did that intentionally. We partnered with UB, obviously. You always have to have a big dynamic university behind you. And then we have the the support from Mayor Byron Brown, who, you know, opened this space back up in 2017 before we actually became a, a nonprofit ourselves. And so the biggest piece about that is that everyone knows that this is a space for them. They know when they walk in here, there are people who look like them. We do have a diverse staff still. There are issues and problems that BIPOC and underrepresented entrepreneurs and business owners face that others don't. We address them head on. And so they know when they come here, there's a, a safe space for them to, hey, I've had problems. Hey, I want a, a triumph in my business. I know this is a place I can be. Okay, so you brought that up then, the, the problems, the issues, the obstacles yeah. that these business owners have faced. Or uh, Let's talk about, about some of those. What are some of the things that stand out? One of the biggest things is funding, right? Um, we often tell our business owners and our entrepreneurs that you shouldn't run after funding all the time. However, it's hard to not say that when a lot of the funding doesn't come to underrepresented and BIPOC businesses. When you think of dollars raised by these businesses, when they go after loans, when they go after venture capital for some of the uh, larger uh, scale organizations, 
the numbers are astounding how much that don't flow back into it when they try to get these. And so what we do is we partner with banks. We try to sit down with VCs and other venture firms to understand how we can make these businesses stand out more, whether it's from the onset of growing and the foundational structure of the business so that they know how to get a loan, they know how to get a grant, they know how to get venture capital dollars, and they can be successful when they go out those attempts. So that funding piece is the first one. Then it's just the foundational learning, right? How do you actually grow a business the right way? And when we say the right way, that's a little different because every business is different, right? But there are some pillars, if you will, that are tried and tested no matter what kind of business you start. How you start it, the formation, growing it, scaling it things that you have to do, put, putting operations in place. We try to make sure that our, our entrepreneurs, if they're new or our business owners, even if they've been 10, 20 years in the game, they know exactly what they need to be focusing on for where they want to go. Not where we want them to go, but where they want to go. So you talk over goals yeah, for them, okay? Absolutely, absolutely. So not only goals, right? Just issues that they may have had before that they facing right now that they didn't see coming stuff that we may know that may be coming down the line based upon things that we've done when we do some of our intakes and then we surround them with specific services legal accounting finance uh, web design development anything that they may need we try to make sure that we can mitigate any issues that they may have down the line what about uh, their skin in the game? Mm-hmm. What uh, What is the commitment from a business? I mean, obviously, just committing to a business is its own. Yeah. It's its own skin for sure. But what we, what uh, are th- these different businesses? What do they have to do to become part of this? Yeah. So here's the fun fact about it: is they don't have to do anything. Hey, it's something, something <laughs> I can do. Right. Uh, they can. As the only thing we ask is to walk in the door. Right. Have an open mindset when you come to talk to us because this is not our baby. Every business is is that individual entrepreneur's, business owner's baby, right? And and like most babies, you got to nurture it, take care of it if you want it to grow, right? Like that kind of thing. You have to pour into it. And so we ask that you be as honest and transparent as possible so we know exactly how we can best help you. Right. All the services that we have here, we do our best to make sure that they are free of charge. Right. Um, From the accounting, from the legal, all of those things, we may offset certain things. And then even from the programming that we'll be unveiling uh, towards the end of the the last quarter, which is coming up (laughs) in a few weeks. Right. right? All of that programming, too. We try to make sure everything is free so that every entrepreneur can have what they need to get what they get to where they're going. You mentioned, you know, be honest, be transparent. And, yeah. and when you said that, I, I, I got that sense of what I would be like. Like I said, if I came in here and I, well, I've got this idea, mm. I don't necessarily want to tell you everything because maybe I'm embarrassed <laughs> by it or yeah. that it's silly or whatever. How, can you talk about those conversations in general? Yeah. Because I mean, there must be some very frank conversations. Absolutely. So, so it's funny. It, it's the transparency part about, you know, coming up with an idea and feeling someone's going to steal it, right? Mm-hmm. We tell people all the time, you know, dreams 
they're only worth much to you, right? To the individual person. I like that. Dreams really can't make money until they're executed on. And I tell everybody who sits down with us, like, I don't have time to execute on your dream because I'm building something here right now, right? And so once they understand that, then they usually let their guards down and then they talk about, okay, this is the why behind the business I'm creating or this is the why behind the pivot that I want to undergo because I've been in a business for 15 years or this is the why behind why I quit my job for this dream that I have, right? There's a few people who've come in here in the corporate space, six-figure salaries, years in the space that say, you know what, I want to do this, and we help them as well too. So we have to make sure when we have these conversations, they are transparent, we are frank, we are telling them what they need to hear, not just what they want to hear. Um, so these conversations and, the, and these dreams, like you said, they, they, how do some people just say, you know what, it's just talking to you, I've learned this is not for me. Do you get those two? Yeah, absolutely. We've, we get a lot. We get the people who are like, oh, I'm fired up. I'm ready to go. I still want to tackle it. Then we get the people who say, oh, and pause, mm. right? And we tell them, listen, entrepreneurship isn't for everyone. There are some people who are more suited to actually work, right, in employment or work for an entrepreneur. There's no problem with that because they may have skills or talents that help entrepreneurs build their business. You can make a lot of money from that alone, right? But what we impress upon people is that when you take a step, this leap, this jump, this journey of faith, uh, you're going to be working more than you did before. You're going to be putting in longer hours. You're going to have to think as if you're each individual role in a company before you even sometimes hire those roles. And so it's a lot to take in, and most people don't see that. What you have is they're only into their craft, and they're not into the actual building of the business. And so that's where we come in and say, hey, let us show you, right, not do it for you, but let us show you what you need to do put the pieces around you so that way you can build that business while you still focus on what you love to do, right? Either building a, a product or service or whatever it is, right? The goal for us is to make sure that, hey, you have what it, around you what you need to get and scale. And so, and scaling is a, is, a, is a fancy word for a lot of people because scaling sometimes means millions and, and millions of dollars. But if you have somebody making $100 a month and then they now are making 5000 a month, that's a hell of a scale. Yes. Yeah, I like, like that. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> it is a whole scale. <laughs> I'll, right. I'll, so, I'll follow up on that one. <laughs> right. So that, that, that still is a scale for this entrepreneur. And you got to remember, too, the community we serve, they need to not, uh, see these um, entrepreneurs who are out here who are doing things like this. They need to be around each other so they can share these stories where they may be fearful and things like that. And, and more importantly, they just need to know that they can do it. You know, the one thing I think about the city of Buffalo, and I think more specifically about this neighborhood, grit. Grit. Lots of grit, yep. for sure. Do you see that? Maybe people don't even understand about themselves, that they have that inside them, that possibility. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, in order, being here as long as I have since college, um, you know, I tell people all the time, like, Buffalo's a second home, right? Without a doubt. 
Uh, I joke with a lot of people. While I'm from Brooklyn, and I'm never going to run that down, you know, shy away from that, um, Buffalo was a blue-collar city. And like other blue-collar cities across the nation, there's grit throughout it. And so people here are born and bred with that grit. So that in and of itself lives in them. And so that can really push forward into this career of entrepreneurship. And people really don't see it. I do think that as we move, you know, year in and year out, a lot of the successes that have happened, say in tech, right, with like ACV auctions here and and, um, other big name organizations like Tesla and all these manufacturing people wanting to come to the city, right, that's opening the doors for people to say, okay, oh, okay, Buffalo, we're seeing you, and, and rightfully so, because I've had more people in tech say, like, I've heard about Buffalo. I, you see these larger organizations and companies are saying, hey, can we put things in Buffalo? That's not by chance, right? That's because Buffalo has been built on this grittiness from day one, right? Um, yes, the manufacturing plants of, the, of yesteryears have left, but we see that there's always a revitalization. There's always a new renaissance, if you will. And that's happening right now. And so we want to make sure here at the exchange that a lot of the black and brown business owners, entrepreneurs, they don't get left behind. They get to see that, hey, there are people doing these things that are here. And then we also shine a light on people in other cities. I I always mention uh, Durham, North Carolina, Hmm. which is another kind of blue collar city. They were huge in tobacco um, that turned into a, a huge entrepreneur, thriving startup community. Google and, and Amazon and all of those big names moved into that. And then, lo and behold, you see what's happening here, similar in, in nature um, that's happening here in Buffalo. And I think we're we're really on that cusp of really turning this whole thing around. So I'm excited about that. But again, we've got to do our part to make sure our entrepreneurs and business owners, you know, they get a piece of that pie by being able to build and help and pour back into the their own community, but the city at large, right? Because business is about money. And the more businesses, the more entrepreneurs that are bred and are successful, it does really well for the city. I got the sense that once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur, and never really, never really stops. Probably from the moment you wake up in the morning to the time you go to bed, and maybe even during your dreams as well. Uh, Derek, you walk in to this building every day, right here at East Utica and Jefferson, and you get to see this neighborhood. What do you see as possibilities? What when you look around, you're like, wow, this could be here, that could be here. What do you see? Yeah, that's that's a great question because I, I have this conversation with my wife as well too, who is a, a newly minted entrepreneur as well we too. Yeah, Porsche. <laughs> yeah, we definitely. <laughs> hey, you know, you see, oh, you know yeah, already. Okay. Co-worker. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> you know, shout out to 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 her um, and her business, uh, Ari Parks and PR doing phenomenal things. And I, I like to say at least, I think it's because she's watching me be an entrepreneur all these years. She took a Why? step out. Well, be <laughs> so, careful with that one. Right, right, right. <laughs> you, you know, um, I think we've had these conversations. And again, because I'm not from here, I have a different perspective, right? I get to see and listen. And, and I mentioned earlier the season community members that come to the library that say, hey, I want to, I, I just want to, 
live this, this nostalgic feeling all over again of doing reading rainbow of sitting downstairs, that kind of thing. And then I get to hear what Jefferson Avenue was like back in the fifties, the sixties, the seventies, the eighties, you know, and then I say to myself, wow, it was intentional that the mayor put this hub here. It was intentional that, you know, we created a nonprofit that now stands alone and can raise money, you know, from foundations nationwide. Now we have to be intentional of seeing how we can recreate or rebuild what that Jefferson Avenue corridor. I mean, shops, businesses, playgrounds, the pictures that people have brought in and shown me. I think that is the sense and feeling that I get right now that what that's the journey we're on. The more entrepreneurs and business owners that we help, the more we can get Jefferson back to that heyday, right? And and I say that respectfully because this is a new generation, right? right? And so not to get it back to what it was, but to get it back to what it should have been all along, right? And that's the thing we want to do. We have a lot of open lots here, you know, getting businesses in here, working with the banks to kind of figure out how we can get more buildings uh, spun up. And that way we can really and truly get more businesses in different varieties here. Because as, as, as I mentioned before, when entrepreneurs and business owners succeed, they not only pour into their own selves and their families, but they pour into the community, they pour into the city. Think about having multiple areas throughout the city of Buffalo that are thriving business districts. I mean, that just helps the city in ways unimaginable. So that's really what I want to see. That's what I think the goal of the Exchange of Beverly Gray is, not just to be a conduit for entrepreneurs and business owners, but to build this new business community. That, that's something that we've never seen before and that we're excited to be a part of. We thank you for joining us. This has been What's Next Producers Picks. We also would like to thank all our guests this week, Dr. Andrew Highland, Herman, and Derek Parson. As a reminder, What's Next airs on WBFO every weekday, 10 to 11, and re-airs each weeknight at 9 p.m. Each episode is available wherever you get your podcasts, the Amplify BTPM app, and also on demand at WBFO.org. I'm producer Lorenz Rodriguez, and thank you very much for listening. WBFO History Bites, bringing you a peek into significant historical events for the week of October 2nd through October 8th. I'm your host, Josh Deckert. On October 2nd, 1938, the Elmwood Music Hall was demolished. The hall was the main host for performances before Kleinhand's Music Hall opened in 1940. On October 5th, 1995, Common Grounds, Buffalo's first internet cafe, opened. The cafe provided patrons with computers and allowed them to access the internet. The cafe also offered training for the new technology. On October 6, 1991, the earliest recorded snowfall took place in Buffalo. 
and on October 7, 1829, Daredevil Sam Patch jumped from Niagara Falls and survived. Ten days later, Patch jumped from the falls a second time and also survived. You've been listening to the WBFO History Bite. Discover more stories about Western New York's past on the Buffalo History Museum's website. You can learn more at buffalohistory.org. For WBFO, I'm Josh Deckert. Thank you.